Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Development, Jane Jacobs once said, can't be given. It's an organic expression of what a society is and its preconditions are too complex and various to be conferred by one society on another. Nevertheless, for 40 years, Western societies have been trying to give development to the countries of Asia, Africa and Latin America. During the first half of this period, international development was carried out with a crusading sense of missionary purpose. You can hear it in this excerpt from US President Harry Truman's inaugural address in January of 1949. We must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. More than half the people of the world are living in conditions approaching misery. Their food is inadequate. They are victims of disease. Their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their poverty is a handicap and a threat both to them and to more prosperous areas. I believe that we should make available to peace-loving peoples the benefits of our store of technical knowledge in order to help them realize their aspirations for a better life. Harry Truman's projection of international development as America's global mission was renewed in the early 60s by Jack Kennedy with his creation of the Peace Corps and the Alliance for Progress. But by the late 60s, dissenting voices began to be heard. One of the first was Ivan Illich. He called development a war on subsistence and predicted that it would undermine people's capacity to cope with their environments in traditional ways without offering a real alternative. The attempt to transplant Western institutions, he said, would produce not Western-style development, but social polarization, with the majority forced into a situation of modernized poverty far more painful than traditional subsistence. During the 70s, Parts of this critique began to be picked up by environmentalists. They noticed how big dams often displaced whole communities, how export-oriented agriculture stole the best lands from food production for local consumption, how commercial logging disrupted traditional harvesting of forests. By the 1980s, even the big development banks had to recognize the force of this critique. In May 1988, World Bank President Barbara Conable formally admitted that many World Bank projects had been environmentally destructive and pledged a new green future for the bank. One of the people who has led the campaign to bring the big development institutions to account has been Pat Adams, the executive director of Toronto's Probe International. Again and again she has pointed out the damage done to both democracy and ecology by development aid. Protecting the environment, she has argued, means, first of all, protecting the people who subsist from it. I think we must always remember that when a project is going to harm the global environment, it's first going to harm a local environment. There are always people in a particular area who are going to be most threatened and first threatened by that project. And so I think we have, to, we have to recognize that rather than there being a divergence of local interests from the global interest, in fact there's a convergence. And if you give people at the local level the power and the tools to protect themselves and their communities, then the global economy and ecology will look after itself. Tonight on Ideas, You'll meet Pat Adams in part two of our series on redefining development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. A few weeks ago, External Affairs Minister Joe Clark received a copy of a new book published by Probe International. It was called Damning the Three Gorges, What the Dam Builders Don't Want You to Know. The book concerns a massive dam which the Chinese government proposes to build on the Yangtze River a dam which will require the relocation of more than a million people. The $14 million feasibility study for the project was financed by CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency, supervised by the World Bank and conducted in secret 
by a consortium of Canadian utilities and engineering consultants, including BC and Quebec Hydro. The consortium made a 13-volume study which endorsed the project. Only a summary was released to the public. Probe International immediately petitioned for the release of the entire study and, after prolonged wrangling, received a somewhat censored version of it in April of 1989. Probe then invited 10 internationally recognized experts to make an independent evaluation of the consortium's study. This resulted in the volume forwarded to Joe Clark. It roundly condemned the feasibility study, both on the grounds of conflict of interest members of the consortium would be in line for contracts if the dam proceeded, and of negligence in the assessment of the dam's human and environmental consequences. The consortium's study, said one of the book's contributors, Dr. Vaclav Smil of the University of Manitoba, was neither engineering nor science, but an expert prostitution paid for by Canadian taxpayers. We regretfully conclude said Probe International's director, Pat Adams, in her accompanying letter to Joe Clark, that the Canadian government's commitment to sustainable development and to respect for the rights of third world citizens is hollow. The attack on the Three Gorges Dam and on CEDA's role in bringing it nearer fruition is typical of the work of Probe International, which describes itself as a public interest research group monitoring the effects of Canadian aid and trade policies on the people of the third world. Pat Adams is the executive director. She believes that through the efforts of organizations like Probe, development aid is now questioned much more seriously by the public than it once was. I think there has been quite a transition over the last 10 years from a general acceptance and support for the development aid agencies for the concept of development uh, in the third world to improve the standards of living of people in the third world. And I would say over the last decade there has been a, a loss of innocence. I think the, that the public in the first world, in, in the donor countries, in the developed world, uh, has started to see development for what it is. And one of the things that made the difference was that we started receiving some very, very nitty-gritty details of the implications, both environmental and human uh, implications and consequences uh, of these very, very large development projects which were being designed in the capital cities of the industrialized countries and in, in the borrowing uh, third world countries as well. And it was really this uh, amassing of a huge amount of evidence of development projects that had gone awry. And the reason that they are going awry is because that they are not consistent with the wishes and the choices for the kind of lifestyles and, and use of the physical resources that the people in the third world want to make. You know, we have to, I think, recognize that m most third world governments are not elected by their people. And therefore, when they choose a project, uh, such as a hydroelectric dam or a road building scheme, we should not automatically assume that that is the choice of the people. In fact, we should assume the opposite, because there are no checks and balances, or very few, in these countries to ensure that the projects that are chosen are really uh, the choices of the people. Mm -hmm. So it was really the, the collection of a huge amount of information. And there was another significant thing that happened, and that was the improvement in communication technology. More and more groups in the third world really citizens' rights groups who were either defending communities uh, because of the environmental consequences of a project that they were facing or the social consequences or the economic consequences would find us. They would find us somehow. They, they, would, they would organize themselves, they would try to fight these projects, and then they would say, now it's Canada that's financing this project. Who in Canada can help us? They, of course, realized that we were in part responsible for these projects, and they found us. They found us through the churches. They found us through conferences. They, they found us through friends of theirs who happened to travel. They, they found whatever way they could to communicate with us. And uh, for 35 years, the, the development institutions, institutions like CETA, the Canadian International Development Agency, the World Bank, have been able to spend money in other countries without us knowing what the consequences were because we couldn't communicate with the people. And that changed in the last decade. All of a sudden, we started to get a lot of information about the consequences. And we've realized that there are grassroots citizens groups 
all over the third world that are just like the environmental groups and the citizens groups in this country who are trying to defend their communities from unwanted development, from unwanted investments in, in the use of their resources. They want to make the choices just as any Canadian would want to make the choices about how our own environment is used. In 1985, Pat Adams and her colleague Lawrence Solomon brought out a book about what they were learning called In the Name of Progress, the Underside of Foreign Aid. The book pointed overwhelmingly to the corrupting effects of development assistance and the way in which foreign sponsorship has allowed governments to ignore the wishes of their own people and commit follies they could never otherwise have afforded. Pat Adams is now working on a second study called Environment Held Hostage, How Debt is Affecting the Third World. Gustava Esteva, uh, who I heard speak at a conference in Tunisia a couple of years ago, uh, made a comment. He said, you know, he said, in Mexico, we have really been enjoying the debt crisis. And of course, that really caught the attention of, of everybody and everyone's jaws dropped. But a number of us who were listening to him, who uh, have worked in the environmental movement and have been fighting a lot of these big aid and development, so-called development projects, understood what he was talking about. I mean, it, 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 it struck a chord with us. And he, he said that essentially uh, the drying up of money, when the debt crisis hit, banks were not prepared to lend more money to third world governments. And that uh, brought to a halt a, a number of very disastrous uh, so-called development projects. And sure enough, this is what the environmental community had been recognizing. I mean, for years, we have been fighting ill-conceived, ill-considered development projects, such as hydroelectric dams in, in very sensitive areas that, that forcibly resettle hundreds of thousands of people. The nuclear power uh, expansion program in Mexico, for example, was also uh, canceled because of the debt crisis. They managed to finish uh, two of their reactors, but just barely. Uh, and they canceled a massive program that they had planned on embarking on. Uh, hydroelectric dams all over the world were put on hold. Road building schemes, logging operations were canceled because there wasn't enough money to finance them. And, you know, I think what Gustava Esteva said was something that we had all recognized but hadn't really articulated, which was that money is power. And when you lend money, when your commercial banks or your government lends money to another government, it gives them the power to use resources in a certain way. And it gives them a, a great deal of independence from their own people. And this is something that uh, the astrophysicist, the well-known civil rights leader from China, uh, Feng Liji, said that when his government, the Chinese government, is lent money from the outside world, it gives his government the power to be independent from the Chinese people. His government does not have to rely on the Chinese people from which to extract money to finance a lot of these big projects. And that's why he, for example, has called for a halt to all World Bank lending, all foreign aid lending, except in the area of education. Because he, too, articulated the same principle that Gustavo Esteva did and our colleagues in Brazil have articulated, which is that money is power. And when we lend money to their governments, we, we give their governments power against their own people. And for that reason, groups in Brazil, for example, have said to us, look, we appreciate your goodwill. We appreciate the principles and the concept behind foreign aid. We appreciate that you want to help us. But quite frankly, what you're doing is you're financing our government against us. So please, just keep your money. And, and this came as a real shock to us, uh, I think, at the beginning of this decade. And over the decade, we've learned it. We've seen how money can be misused. And, uh, and I think this is really what has, has really changed the attitude towards the, the uh, development institution, the institution of channeling what is now $45 billion a year to the third world. Well, how did this... I know you're working now on, uh, on a history of the debt crisis. How did the spending bonanza that led to the debt crisis come about in the first place? There are a number of uh, theories, and uh, the main reason I think that is recognized by everybody is that there was a, a massive 
reordering of, of surplus cash at the time of the oil crisis. Um, what happened was the uh, OPEC countries all of a sudden found themselves holding an awful lot of foreign exchange, which of course was being paid uh, to them for their oil by uh, countries like the U.S., all of Western Europe, Japan, and of course the Third World. So there was this this you know huge chunk of money that all of a sudden found its way into the hands of, of OPEC member countries. They wanted to do something, of course, with the money, so they deposited it in the commercial banking system. The commercial banks then found themselves with an awful lot of money, and they, when they accept money as deposits, they then have to lend it out again, and uh, so they did. They lent it out to the, the countries who were extremely short of foreign exchange, and those were the countries in the third world. Now, to what extent there was official encouragement from institutions like the World Bank, the U.S. government, the Canadian government, Western European governments, we don't really know for sure. It's very difficult to sort that out. Although certainly bank uh, uh, presidents such as uh, Mr. Ritchie from the Bank of Nova Scotia have said that uh, th there was sort of a wink and a nod were the words that he used that the commercial banking system got from the uh, uh, from governments in the Western countries uh, to make sure that this money got into the hands of the countries who were very cash short. And those were the, the third world countries. So they embarked on uh, an extraordinary, massive lending program, channeling billions of dollars to governments, many of which were military governments, uh, almost none of which were elected by their people, and um, over which the people in the third world had no control. You know, in Brazil, the Brazilian Congress is now trying to track down the contracts for, the, for these loans that were made with commercial banks. They can't even get the contracts. You know, these governments were extremely unaccountable. And, uh, of course, the people in the third world, if they dared ask the question, how much money are you borrowing and what are you doing with it, they were very likely to end up in jail. So we can understand why they didn't ask those questions. So they had, they had no idea what money was being borrowed in their name, as it was. And what turned this lending into what we now call the debt crisis? At what point did it begin to be perceived as a crisis, and why? Well, the crisis hit in 1982, August 12th, when uh, the finance minister in Mexico phoned the head of the IMF, the Federal Reserve in the U.S., and said, uh, we're bankrupt, can't pay our bills. And then the whole world really came crashing down. I think it was at that point that all of the banks realized how terribly vulnerable they were to a couple of countries, most of them in Latin America. They had lent uh, out far more than they ever should have, and that their own financial viability was threatened if these countries could not continue to pay the money back. And indeed, that's that's precisely what happened. So a number of rescue operations were organized by the IMF, and they managed to get enough cash really back into the hands of the Brazilian government, the Mexican government, the Argentinian government, so that they could continue to pay their bills. But at this point, it was not new money. It was just new money was being lent in order to pay back old bills. So it was just a, a very uh, elaborate recycling process that was going on, and it was especially designed to uh, keep calm in the international financial markets. Pat Adams considers the debt crisis an environmental boon because it has slowed down big development projects. In seeing development itself as the primary cause of environmental destruction, she dissents from the current conventional wisdom of, say, the Brundtland Commission. Brundtland argued that poverty is the main cause of environmental degradation, and therefore only economic growth can save the environment. Adams disagrees. Most of the environmental damage that has been done in the third world, I would say in the last 30, 40 years, but especially in the last 20 years, uh, has been caused by massive projects such as hydroelectric dams, such as road building schemes, cattle ranching operations, agricultural schemes that were financed with foreign money. Now, the development institutions like the World Bank and CETA really prefer to describe the environmental problem in the third world as being a consequence of poverty. I disagree with that. I don't think that the poor naturally destroy their environment. In fact, I think what has caused the destruction of the environment is very, very bad projects, but also really unsustainable economic policies as well. For example, in Brazil, there was a, a credit program for the agricultural sector which encouraged farmers 
to uh, borrow money from the government at very low interest rates, purchase land with it, and then, uh, because of land tenure regulations, clear the land uh, in order to establish ownership of it. And uh, most of that land was in the Amazon. And this was, a, this was something that was very expensive to the government. They could only finance as long as they got international financing for it. And it encouraged the massive uh, destruction of the Amazon rainforest. There were other projects as well. For example, the uh, Balbina Hydroelectric Dam in Brazil, designed with help from a Canadian engineering firm, uh, Montreal Engineering. They identified a site in the Amazon that, uh, as it turned out to, uh, to be a very bad site for a hydroelectric dam, uh, it was not only a very flat area, but it turned out to have a couple of um, rather deep uh, r uh, river, uh, more river valleys as well as ravines, which caused havoc when they eventually closed the floodgates and started to fill the reservoir. And apparently what the engineers did was they flew over uh, the, the area to, uh, to be dammed and they used uh, aerial photographs uh, to, uh, to measure the top of the rainforest canopy and then they assumed a certain height of tree and, uh, and then assumed that therefore that, that determined the topography underneath the forest canopy. Well, what they didn't know was they didn't understand how the rainforest worked, and they didn't realize that uh, indeed the, the top of the forest canopy was hiding a bunch of these very, very deep ravines. Well, time came, they closed the floodgates uh, for the dam, and the water started to back up. And what it did was it created uh, a series of canals, and uh, the water flowed into these little these little uh, ravines, and created a, a series. In fact, 1,500 hilltops, and of course, the water spread everywhere, and it, it spread to a much larger area than they ever expected. Now, on these hilltops, the animals from the the rainforest sought refuge, and one of the residents described it as a most horrible scene that animals uh, who found themselves on these hilltops didn't have enough room and started to die. And uh, he, this, this resident described it as, as absolutely horrible and, and said that, you know, it was corpses on, tops, on top of corpses on top of corpses. So that was just the beginning. Once they closed the floodgates, they also uh, had not cleared the area of the trees and the vegetation that would uh, now be under the reservoir. And the decomposing vegetation caused uh, the development, really, of uh, an oxygen deficiency, which led to the death of all the fish in the river. Not only did it do that, but it turned the water very acidic, so that the populations that lived around the, the reservoir now found themselves with uh, intestinal disorders, skin rashes, vomiting, and uh, there was a breakout of... Um, of malaria, because often when you create very large bodies of water that are stagnant, then it creates a perfect uh, breeding ground for mosquitoes, which are the the vector for for malaria. So, uh, you know, the ultimate insult of this this project was that it cannot generate the electricity that they expected it 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 would generate in the first place, because there wasn't enough water to go through the turbines to generate the electricity. Now, the irony in all of this. Uh, is that in 1985, an IMF, an International Monetary Fund austerity program and an austerity agreement that they had reached with the Brazilian government, had led the Brazilian government to cancel the Balbina Dam. It was not completed until 1987. But the governor of the state of Amazonas, where the dam was located, uh, objected strenuously, contacted the president of Brazil, and said, I want this dam to go ahead. And there, there was, I gather, a great debate. And, and uh, President Sarney eventually agreed that it would be exempt from the IMF austerity program. Now, the IMF is, is the institution that the world loves to hate because it does uh, require these austerity programs from third world governments. But Austerity programs are not always necessarily bad. In many cases, the money has been spent on projects that are not in any way uh, sustainable, either economically or environmentally. And uh, I think we have to take that into account. So you're saying that essentially the, the debt crisis and the drying up of new money stopped a lot of projects that would have been damaging. But isn't there another side to it? 
that the, the hardship imposed on the countries created its own kind of ecological problems? Yes, that is that is certainly true. And there are cases, for example, in Ecuador where the logging regulations were relaxed specifically so that more logs could be exported, so that more foreign exchange could be earned, so that they could continue to pay off their foreign debt. There's no doubt about it that the debt crisis has hurt the environment in some respects. Also in Ecuador, for example, oil exploration has carried on uh, at great cost to, to the tropical rainforest and to the native people who count that as their home. There's certainly no doubt about it. At the same time, I have discussed this with colleagues in Brazil, and I have asked, you know, what would happen if there were no debt crisis? Would the Carajás mining operation in the northeastern part of the Brazilian Amazon, which is a massively destructive mining operation that's destroying about 58,000 square kilometers of tropical rainforest, would a project like that not go ahead if there were no debt to be paid back? And they thought about it. And they said, no, it probably would go ahead because our government wants to export minerals, logs, whatever we can export in order to earn foreign exchange because then they want to import goods with that foreign exchange. So I think that there is always going to be the desire amongst, uh, amongst third world governments, all governments for that matter, to earn foreign exchange. And they will sell off whatever they can of their country's assets in order to earn that foreign exchange. And the only way to restrict them from doing that is really to empower the people whose resources are being pirated. That's the only thing that will stop governments. And that's true of all governments, not just third world governments, but our governments as well. So you're saying, for example, in Africa or Central America where lands have been taken um, for export crops and subsistence has been injured by that that you think that probably would have happened anyway under present political circumstances. Yes. That, that it was not driven by the debt, it's driven by other forces. That's right. And it was happening before the debt. Indeed, that's where the debt came from. The, the money that was borrowed was borrowed to invest in hydroelectric dams so they could mine the bauxite, so they could process it into aluminum, so they could export it for more foreign exchange. The, the, the problem came in that the money was borrowed for projects that were not carefully considered. You know, on paper they sort of looked okay, but we've managed to get a few of those papers in the last 10 years. We've managed to get a few of those feasibility studies, and we've realized that the emperor has no clothes, that these projects never made sense from the beginning. And that's where the debt came from, and we have to recognize that. And if we turn the tap back on, if we could do away with the debt today, and turn the tap of money back on, I can guarantee that in 10 or 20 years there would be a new debt crisis, because that's where it came from. Well, that's, a lot of people are calling for forgiving the debt as the way to get development back on track, the way to solve, say, the crisis of Africa. What do you think, in more detail, would be the consequences of, of, uh, of across-the-board debt forgiveness? I have no problem with debt forgiveness. I think that probably the vast majority of today's $1.3 trillion debt that the third world owes to us was contracted under fraudulent circumstances. And I think it is really outrageous that the people of the third world, who, who were never party to these contracts, who never had the means of due process to control their governments and so on before they embarked on these contracts. I, I think in principle for that reason that they should not be expected to be responsible for these debts. However, if we did away with the current debt and could somehow conjure up lots of new money, as, as many of the development institutions are calling for, there are no guarantees that the money would be spent any better today than it was spent 20 years ago. A lot of the money would go into the same crazy projects that made no economic sense, that uh, hurt the environment, that destroyed the livelihoods of millions of people. And ultimately, it, it, it is usually money that is lent. It's not a grant. And the people of the third world would once again have to, have to pay that money back. As long as there are not democratic checks and balances that a people can have over their government, there's no guarantee that our loans to them are either going to be properly spent or put into the right kinds of investments.
You've written about the debt crisis. I remember a piece in the Globe and Mail maybe a year ago now in which you spoke openly about the fact that the debt crisis may have done a lot of good, in a sense. It may have stopped a lot of bad things from happening in any event. Uh, I gather that you've created a lot of controversy by that stand. What's been the nature of the controversy? Well, the controversy has been, um, I think, unthinking, and I also think missed the point. The fact that the debt crisis has stopped ill-considered projects that destroy environments, destroy the livelihoods of people, is really a perverse consequence of the debt. To use a debt situation to control the expenditure and investment of money is, is a crazy way to do it. it. Far better ways are to use democratic mechanisms to control the way governments borrow and spend money. But the fact remains that when you have so many governments which are unaccountable to their people, that cutting off money to them, in fact, restricts their ability to invest in very damaging projects. Now, that is not to defend the debt as a way of, uh, of controlling these investments. It is a consequence. We, we just have to accept that, that that is the result. But, but there's a very important lesson in that, and, and that is that money is power. Yeah. And that if we're going to lend money to governments, we have to say to those governments, demonstrate to us that this investment is consistent with the wishes of your people. But how on earth would, would, could such an assurance ever be given or gained? I mean, what, what if uh, the government of Brazil were contemplating lending money to Canada for the James Bay hydroelectric phase two? Would they, would they judge that the people of Canada wish that to happen, or would they look at the fact that the people who are going to be flooded out didn't wish it to happen, or...? Yes, you, you raise a very important point. I think that what we have to start by doing is not setting up elaborate review procedures for these mega-projects, which go on in this country and in the third world, but we have to start by recognizing the primary rights of people in all of our countries of the world. In the case of the James Bay, the, the Cree are participating in federal and provincial review procedures because they have to, not because they want to. As far as they are concerned, it is their land. And as far as they, they are concerned, this should not be a subject for discussion, as I understand their position. As far as they are concerned, they don't want the project to go ahead, and therefore it should not be a matter for discussion by any review hearing. And I think that we have to do the same thing for people in the third world. We have to, for example, start by recognizing that you cannot forcibly resettle communities, ever. You, if a community wants to move and sell their land to a utility so that they can flood it with a hydroelectric dam, well, okay. But the, the point is that we have to recognize the land rights we have to recognize the property rights of citizens all over the world. And when we start to recognize those rights, then they will start to protect the environment. There's a very interesting and tragic case in India, a site called Singrali, which is the site for what may be one of the world's largest energy and industrial plans. There are 12 open pit coal mines. There are uh, coal fire generating, electricity generating stations. And this industrial program has essentially devastated the community. For generations, it was a, a heavily forested area. There were lots of wild animals on which the people in the area depended for their protein. It was a, a very prosperous farming community. And then along came the Indian government and its electric utility and said, well, we're going to create a reservoir here and then we're going to put all these uh, coal-fired electricity generating stations around and put in all these open pit coal mines. And within a, a decade, the community has been destroyed, the area has been deforested, and it has now been described by the Indian press as equivalent to the, the lower circles of Dante's Inferno. What has essentially happened is that uh, coal ash has spread around the community. Uh, it's landed on agricultural land, creating a sort of a cement-like 
a substance that's made growing crops very difficult. Uh, the women and children in this community uh, have been forced to take jobs with the electric utility and they, they work at half of the state wages. They uh, work for 12 hours a day. The, the incidence of death from respiratory illnesses is extremely high. Uh, the canal that, that feeds the, uh, the coal generating stations leaks. Uh, it's damaged agricultural lands. You know, it, it has essentially been a disaster. It, it is, as the people there have described it, hell on earth. And, you know, the, the world talks with great fear about what are we going to do when India and when China uh, start to use more and more coal to meet their energy needs. You know, w we discuss these countries as if they have this insatiable desire to exploit the global commons and to destroy the, the world's environment. Well, that's nonsense. I think we must always remember that when, when a project is going to harm the global environment, it's first going to harm a local environment. There are always people in a particular area who are going to be most threatened and first threatened by that project. So in the case of Singrali, we had uh, a community of 500,000 people who have been shuffled around and resettled and sometimes resettled over and over again just to make way for these projects who are now suffering from death and, and illnesses caused by the, the development scheme. They were the world's first line of defense. And yet their rights were not recognized. They had no right to defend themselves. They had no right to say, no, we don't want an open pit coal mine here. We want to carry on with our agricultural lifestyles. No, we don't want a coal fire generating system here because that's going to give us respiratory illnesses and so on. They didn't have the right to say that. They, they just had to live with it. And uh, had they had the right, had, they, had their property rights been recognized, had their environmental rights been recognized, not only would their community have been saved, but the world's environment would have been better off. The Singrali site is one of the largest point sources of CO2 emissions in the world. And so I think we have to, we have to recognize that rather than there being a divergence of local interests from the global interest, in fact, there's a convergence and if you give people at the local level the power and the tools to protect themselves and their communities, then, then the global economy and ecology will look after itself. I believe you. But if you carry local autarky to that point, would there be any economic development at all in the world? Well, Can't you almost always identify somebody locally whose ox is being gored? I mean, in any such development? No, I, I think what would happen is I, I believe that human beings and communities are always changing. I think people are naturally innovative. Different communities change at different paces. Some communities don't want to change at all. I mean, we, we all know sort of the, the Mennonite communities and so on, and they make a, a, a conscious collective decision not to change. That's fine. They're perfectly within their rights to do that. And then there are other communities and individuals who may want to change. And what societies have to do and communities is establish a decision-making procedure that protects the rights of, of each one of them individually and protects their rights as a community. And when they have those tools to do so, then some changes will occur some innovations will be made. And to my mind, that's what development is. Development is not when a government backs a corporation that comes in and says, we want to put in a coal plant here, or we want to put in a hydroelectric dam here, and we have the right to make that decision, how to use your land. That's not development. That's assault. Mm -hmm. But that's not development. And, and that's... That's what has been happening for the last 30 years in the case of the third world, is outsiders from Washington, from Ottawa, from the capital cities have been making decisions about how to use somebody else's environment. Right. Well, you can't expect accountable decision making when the people who make the decisions don't have to live with the consequences. Not only the physical consequences and the environmental consequences, but the financial consequences as well. It's not an accountable system. It, there's a, been a total breakdown in accountability in the development process. You know, another example of that would, would be the case with Toronto garbage. You know, as long as, as Toronto can find another community to take our problem, then there's no pressure on us to deal with our own problems. And as long as we can dump our radioactive waste on some other community, we never have to come to grips 
with the consequences of living with that. And, and, and so that's why, you know, you have to set up accountable decisions. You, you know, take the case of Toronto garbage. I think if, if the city of Toronto said, okay, sorry, citizens, we're not going to pick up your garbage anymore, you would see a dramatic change overnight. You would see two and a half million citizens walking into supermarkets with plastic bags or paper bags or old yogurt containers and saying, I'm sorry, I brought my own containers. You know, I don't want to purchase the stuff in all this packaging. You would see a dramatic change very quickly because we would be forced to live with our own garbage. And when, when you're forced to live with your own mistakes and your own problems, then all of a sudden there's this wonderful innovation and people find solutions. People will always find solutions. It's just that we have to have the limits. We have to have limits placed on our activities and we have to have uh, the rights of other communities respected. This view seems to have gained you, in some circles anyway, the reputation of a right-winger. Why do you think that is? Is it because you see solutions in, in art, in, in law, in, in property rights, in, in, uh, in well-established institutions, rather than uh, through the creation of new service bureaucracies to address new environmental needs? It seems to me your solutions are always essentially simple, and already available, although very radical in what they Im imply, uh, and that we are now on the threshold of an era of, uh, of environmental services where development enters a whole new phase. And it seems to me you, you're, you're fundamentally going against that grain with what you're saying. I think that our solutions are essentially decentralized. Our solutions are to put power into the hands of individuals and individuals as they want to organize themselves into communities. And when you do that, you have to give up power. You, you have to say, I don't want a central government making these decisions. I want local communities making these decisions. And that is n in some cases not consistent with you know, the conventional left wing. It's not autarky, it's, it's really decentralized decision-making. And I think it's based on a respect for the good judgment of the average person. But in order to accept that, you have to accept that power is going to be devolved from a central government or from a central body. But I think that frightens a lot of people. I think a lot of people feel, as Eugene Black, who was an early president of the World Bank, felt, that the average person cannot make good decisions themselves, that there has, there has to be these development diplomats, and that they have to align themselves with the, the elites in, in third world countries because only they can figure out what is best for the people of that country. And to save the people of that country from themselves, they're going to have these experts making decisions for them. And what we're saying is that the best expert is the person who has to live with the consequences of a decision. And, and once you, once you uh, make those people accountable and you also give them the tools available, make them available to them to develop their own communities themselves, then you will start to have sound decisions. You know, I, I think a pulp mill, for example, who, who, who wants to establish itself on a river will have to seek the approval of all of the people in that river basin who are going to be affected by that, that pulp mill. And I dare say that they will have great difficulty doing it. But do you think there could be a pulp mill under your scheme? Under the current circumstances, I doubt it, because I don't think the technology has been developed to do it. But once corporations know their limits, once they know that they're not going to be able to put these projects in place because it's not going to be acceptable to the local community, they will find alternatives. But as long as they're not obliged to find alternatives, they won't. As long as the people of Toronto can push their garbage onto somebody else, we will. It, it's these limits which have to be established. We have to uh, lose our ability to, to create poisons for other people. <laughs> I like that way of putting it very much. You've been involved with a whole campaign to identify the human and the ecological costs of big development projects. And I suppose when the World Bank canceled the so-called second power sector loan to Brazil, that was at least a symbolic moment at which you won an important victory. 
the bank itself acknowledged the case against the, the big hydroelectric scheme as it then existed in Brazil. What can happen now? Is a green World Bank a contradiction in terms? What, what can come out of this conjuncture? The World Bank is, is doing a very good job painting itself green. They're churning out an awful lot of rhetoric, and they now are embarking on what they call the Green Fund, which is going to be about $400 million, from which they will fund so-called ecological projects. Now, I think that it is impossible for the World Bank to be a, a green institution because the World Bank, as a multilateral institution, is accountable to the people in no one country. So, for example, if they propose a project, say it's a hydroelectric dam, they may or may not do an environmental assessment. If they do one, they are not obliged to release it to the public or to peers for peer scrutiny. Now, that means they can get away with murder. They can get away with whatever they want. They can say, oh, well, we've done an environmental assessment and we have decided after doing this assessment that this project is sound and we're going to go ahead with it. Not only that, but they are not obliged to discuss the issue with the people who are going to be affected by the project. And, and certainly they're a long way from ever giving these people a prior right to make the decision. So th there is no way to make sure that, that their decisions are consistent with, with the choices and the wishes of the people in the third world. To give you an example of some of the problems that can emerge from this, the Canadian government financed a $14 million feasibility study for the Three Gorges Dam in China. Mm -hmm. And the World Bank was also involved in preparing it and making sure that it, it uh, adhered to proper standards. Well, we managed through the Canadian Access to Information Act to get a copy of it eventually after a year and a half. We have just done a review of it. We've sent it, it out to uh, nine experts around the world who have gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. And we have uh, established and, and I think illustrated that there is just an extraordinary display of, of professional negligence in the preparation of this document. Uh, the consultants admit that the, the views of the people in the Three Gorges uh, River Valley, and the, it's on the Yangtze River, who would be displaced by this project, up to 1.2 million people, uh, their views are not so well known about this project, but never mind, everybody will be happy. You know, it's okay to resettle this number of people. Uh, you know, numerous other flaws that are, are extremely distressing uh, in, in the analysis of the uh, potential for increased earthquake activity, uh, in the potential for increased flooding, and so on. And when you look at this document in detail, you realize that the, the, the corporations who were preparing the assessment have a real interest in seeing the dam proceed because then they have a very good chance of getting the contracts to build the dam. So there's a very serious conflict of interest here. And that leads to extremely flawed analysis. Now, as long as this analysis is secret, there's no way to expose it. It's very difficult to uh, illustrate how their, uh, how their interest are com interests are compromised. The Green Fund that you mentioned, what, what would constitute an ecological project, as you imagine it? Like, what potentially would be the uses of this money? Well, w one potential use would be reforestation, and uh, that, of course, is very dangerous because whether you cut a tree or you plant a tree, you are affecting somebody's environment. And as one of our colleagues in India, Anil Agarwal, who's a well-known environmentalist there, has said that the aid institutions are very good at planting the wrong trees in the wrong places for the wrong reasons for the wrong people. And one of the most common reforestation programs is, uh, are these massive eucalyptus monocultures, which are uh, popping up all over India, places like Thailand as well. Eucalyptus is uh, not only uh, uh, very environmentally destructive, it, it actually uh, absorbs a great deal of water, uh, it tends to uh, really deprive agricultural communities of, the, uh, of available water chokes out uh, agricultural crops, is not available, not, not acceptable to animals, so you can't use it as forage, and so on. It's a very quick-growing tree, and it's, it's being primarily grown for uh, the cellulose. So planting a tree can be just as damaging, as, as I say, as cutting down a tree. And w whenever you tamper with somebody's environment, 
whether you call it a green project or an environmental project or not, uh, is irrelevant. The point is that the people who are going to be affected have to be able to decide yes or no. Do they want their environment to be used this way? I have a feeling that in your ideal commonwealth there is simply no room for this huge international bureaucracy, that they can yeah. by definition do no good. Well, there are a bunch of rules that they should adhere to, and I think it's going to be difficult for them to adhere to it. But I think if they want to continue to exist, they have to. Otherwise, they're going to continue to finance very destructive projects at the ex expense of millions of people and at the expense of their treasuries, which is very dangerous. I think the international institutions look at public opinion and they say, ah, oh, public opinion is green now. Therefore, how can we be green? And the only thing they know how to do is spend money. But as long as they try to spend money in ways that uh, are not accountable to the people who are affected, it doesn't matter how green they try to make it. I mean, the World Bank is afraid to talk to people. Why are they afraid to talk to people? Their job is to improve the lives of people in the third world. Well, then what are they afraid of? Well, they're a multilateral institution. They're made up of governments. Half of their members are governments that don't represent their people. And therefore, they can't, the World Bank as an institution can't go in and talk directly to the people. Well, if that's the case, then we're going to have to close the institution down. Because if you're spending money that influences the way other people live, then you've got to be accountable to them. You've got to give those people the right to say no. And if, it's, if they don't have the right to say no, then mistakes are going to be made, a lot of mistakes with very, very large consequences. On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to a conversation between Pat Adams, the Executive Director of Probe International, and David Cayley. Part two of a four-part series called Redefining Development. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Technical production was by Mike Furness. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Archivist, Ken Pewley. Redefining Development continues next week at this time with a conversation with economist Herman Daly. You can obtain a transcript of tonight's program for $5 or order the whole four-part series for $20. Make your check or money order payable to Ideas Transcripts and send it to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. Be sure to specify whether you want the whole series or just tonight's broadcast of Part 2. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>